Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast episode has frequent references to sex, homophobia, persecution, mental illness and suicide. It also includes descriptions of murder, corporal and capital punishment and post-mortem dissection. Details given are not gratuitous, but listener discretion is strongly advised. It's Monday the 5th of February 1872, not long after 8pm, and in the Melbourne Hospital, a doctor needs the assistance of wardsman Ned Feeney. But Ned can't be found, even though he's just started his shift. Eventually, someone thinks to check the little room that Ned sometimes uses when he's on a break. And there he is, collapsed, unresponsive, barely breathing. Ned is seen by Dr. William Bradford, one of the hospital's visiting surgeons. This medico's verdict? Ned has taken an overdose of chloroform. Dr. Bradford uses every vigorous remedy at his disposal, including a stomach pump, to try to save the man's life. He manages to stabilise Ned Fenny, at least enough that he can be moved into a bed. But he's not out of danger yet, hovering in a precarious state between life and death. What's clear to Dr. Bamford, and to Ned's colleagues, and to his visiting best friend Charlie Marks, is that this has been a suicide attempt. But why would Ned Feeney, the well-liked hospital wardsman and former soldier with the Royal Irish, want to destroy himself? I'm Michael Adams, and this is Romeo and Romeo, part two of the four-part Forgotten Australia miniseries, Murder in the Treasury Gardens. 
Parts 3 and 4 will go on general release over the coming weeks. But if you'd like to hear the entire story now, you can listen to it ad-free as a Forgotten Australia supporter. Links to Apple and Patreon are in your show notes, and you can get a free trial. Supporting this podcast, which is completely independent, costs about the same as a cup of coffee a month, and it helps me cover the costs involved with research. As a thank you, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode, and you'll also get immediate access to a dozen or so exclusive bonus shows. In part one of this episode, we heard how Ned Feeney's life intersected with the Irish potato famine and then the Maori wars in New Zealand, and how experiencing such events may have traumatised him. Once in Melbourne and working at Melbourne Hospital, Ned was further exposed to a lot of human misery. Trauma associated with any or all of these could have contributed to the mental and emotional state that led Ned to attempt suicide but it's also reasonable to believe that he was also acting under intense emotional, mental and spiritual pressure put on him by what was essentially a hateful homophobic society. To understand this better, it's useful to know a little of what Ned Feeney faced in 1870s Melbourne. The punishment of homosexual acts in the Australian colonies had been discussed before there were actually Australian colonies. In 1787, Captain Arthur Phillip expressed his unusual views on capital punishment as it might be applied in the convict settlement that he was to command. In the new colony, where he was to be governor, Phillip did not propose hanging men and women for property crimes or even for violent offences. The punishment of death, he thought, should be reserved for the most grievous of sins, and those were murder and sodomy. Captain Arthur Phillips suggested that rather than hanging these offenders, they could be shipped to New Zealand, where they'd be eaten by the cannibals. That did not happen. Once New South Wales had been established, Governor Phillips was soon ordering men and women to be hanged for the same sort of minor crimes as back home. Men convicted of sodomy in Australia were seldom executed. One of the exceptions occurred in December 1828 in Sydney. A man named George Brown, Chief Officer of the Royal Sovereign, and William Leicester, a boy from this ship, were convicted of a unnatural crime. It should be noted that boy in this instance would have meant a mid to late teenager. Not a child, but a youth a few years short of 21 years old. While sodomy was a catch-all offence, when it was committed upon a young child, the child's age was usually noted and the child him or herself was not charged. In the Brown-Leister case, the Chief Justice was Sir James Dowling. What he said in sentencing shows attitudes of the time and also the reluctance of judges to put too much indecent into the public record. His Honour said, quote, George Brown and William Leister, you have been convicted of an unnatural crime called sodomy, a crime which our laws hold in particular abhorrence. His Honour said he would not go into any observations other than to say the jury had found them guilty. He went on, The law has made your offence capital. It is one at which nature shudders, and it therefore only remains for me to pass upon you that sentence which is affixed to the crime of which you are convicted. Death by hanging. But William Leister was reprieved. The Sydney Gazette's report on the 15th of December reveals another attitude that often prevailed in cases of sodomy, that one man 
Usually the older one was far guiltier because he'd played the role of corrupter. The Gazette editorialised, quote, Repugnant as such crimes are to human nature, still every offence possesses its gradations of guilt, and we have always been of opinion that the criminality of this lad has considerably merged in that of the great offender. There can be little doubt that the youth fell a victim to the artifices of Brown. That William Leicester had been reprieved gave George Brown hope that his life might also be spared. Right up to the moment, he was led to the scaffold with six other men. As I've said, men convicted of sodomy were rarely hanged, and those who were had usually offended against small children. For consensual adult sodomy, custodial punishments were severe. They ranged up to death recorded, which was the judge acknowledging that this was a capital conviction, but also that the executive would commute the sentence to life in prison. For merely attempting an unnatural crime, and this conviction might be on the basis of one witness claiming to have seen something, an offender could still get 12 months or more as a prisoner working on the roads. Then, of course, there were also judges who'd sentence offenders to be flogged. In terms of what Ned Feeney and Charlie Marks risked if they got in trouble with the law, it's useful to look at a few headline cases from the years leading up to their meeting and during the time they were together. In October 1863, Melbourne had been scandalised by what was called the Fitzroy Unnatural Crime. For about 18 months around Fitzroy and Collingwood, a woman named Ellen Maguire, who went by the nickname The Great Eastern, would take men back to her house where they would pay for sex. These customers were described as married men and youths. Ellen Maguire was actually a man named John Wilson. While wearing women's clothing, he was entrapped by a police informer, arrested, taken into custody, stripped, exposed, subjected to invasive examination, and then charged with numerous counts of sodomy. The Herald reported the hearing in the police court had to be cleared of women as various young men gave evidence of how they'd been tricked. Their statements, quote, fixed a capital offence upon the prisoner. The Herald went on. The evidence, although quite unfit for publication, disclosed particulars of a really astounding nature and which will, no doubt, be the subject of surgical investigation. The Bendigo advertiser said the quiet part out loud about the clientele now turned informers. Quote, Strange to say, during an acquaintanceship extending over a period of 18 months, they failed to discover his sex. John Wilson appeared in court on numerous occasions as more and more charges were brought, and each time he entered the dock, the public gallery jeered and hooted. He was hated. John Wilson went to trial in mid-December in the Supreme Court before Victoria's Chief Justice Sir William Stahl. John Wilson pleaded not guilty. There was nothing else you could do. While a killer might claim mitigating circumstances and receive a reduced sentence, there was no way for a homosexual man to do the same thing and hope for any mercy. The Crown's case against John Wilson relied on the men who'd been his sexual partners. A doctor corroborated their claims with what was simply described as medical evidence. It took the jury 20 minutes to find him guilty. So far, no man had been hanged for sodomy in Victoria. 
but the Chief Justice wasn't going to let that stand in his way. This was an extraordinary case, and simply recording death was insufficient. He said, quote, But awful as it is to have to pass this sentence of death on any living being, if ever there was a case in which that sentence should be carried into effect, yours is that one. The mind of any man shrinks with abhorrence and disgust from the commission of such a crime as you have been convicted of. But your case is aggravated by circumstances not only abhorrent to human nature, but the results of which must appear dreadful to anyone reflecting on them. The young men who went with you may morally be guilty as well as you, but their offence is a mere trifle compared with yours. His honour went on. I do not know of a man being executed for this crime in this colony, but I cannot on that account lead you to expect that the executive will take a lenient view of your case. I can only regard you as a doomed man. The Chief Justice sentenced John Wilson to hang by the neck until he was dead. Even before he knew his fate, John Wilson was sufficiently infamous that he was recreated in effigy by Madame Sohir, wife and business partner to Professor Sohir, who'd popularised the pseudoscience of phrenology in Victoria on the way to spinning his biggest profits from the waxworks on Burke Street. The perpetrator of the Fitzroy unnatural crime was made in wax, dressed in women's clothes, and for a time held pride of place at the top of the stairs as you entered the wildly popular Chamber of Horrors. Victoria's executive did commute John Wilson's sentence to life in prison. Off to Pentridge he went, and there he would die six years later of an unspecified illness. So, it's not a stretch to argue that Sir William Stahl had gotten what he wanted, a death sentence for John Wilson. Sir William Stahl's fellow Supreme Court Justice, Redmond Barry, most famous for later presiding in Ned Kelly's trial, was also vicious in handing down punishments for sodomy. Given sodomy was perceived as a moral crime, a sexual abomination before God, it should be noted that Redmond Barry was renowned for breaking God's commandments in his own private life. He was only in Melbourne because he'd been made persona non grata in Sydney after being busted as the cad in a shipboard adultery scandal on his passage to Australia. And once in Melbourne, despite being a leading citizen, jurist and gentleman, Redmond Barry maintained a long-term mistress with whom he had a clutch of illegitimate children. Of course, in court, he was the picture of piety and rectitude as he dished out punishment on other sinners. In October 1865, Redmond Barry presided in the sodomy case against a man named Edward Drew, the accused and a youth whose age was not given, suggesting again he was in his late teens, was seen by a witness doing something in the darkness of the botanical gardens. They'd both fled, but the lad was apprehended. Following the informer template, he claimed that Edward Drew had lured him into the park. Edward Drew pleaded not guilty. After five hours, the jury would only convict on the lesser charge of attempted sodomy. Usually, this would attract a shorter sentence, perhaps a year or two, but Redmond Barry sentenced Edward Drew to eight years in Pentridge. Redmond Barry said he had one regret. He was sorry the law didn't allow him to also sentence the man to three floggings. 
A couple of years later, Redmond Barry would be the one to find a legal loophole so he could reintroduce the lash for offenders he deemed deserving of a whipping. Initially, it was used on a 15-year-old boy bushranger whose laughable attempts at highway robbery had ended with him shooting himself through the mouth. Yet soon floggings were being ordered for all sorts of petty convictions. Chief Justice Stahl approved. In October 1870, a middle-aged man named John Robert Morrison was brought before him in Beechworth Circuit Court on a charge of sodomy a charge that relied on the shaky testimony of a single witness. John Morrison pleaded not guilty. The jury didn't believe him. Chief Justice Stahl sentenced John Morrison to 10 years with hard labour, and he was also to receive 150 lashes. This was the maximum flogging sentence. The lashes would be administered with a cat of nine tails in three sets of 50 spaced two months apart. The whip would be wielded by Melbourne's hangman, William Bamford, a one-eyed drunkard and habitual criminal pimp. Melbourne's newspapers savoured the first flogging, giving readers blow-by-blow descriptions. The Argus, quote, The first stroke slightly raised the skin. At the second, the prisoner winced. At the third, he commenced to roar. John Morrison screamed, Oh my God, and Oh, I'm killed. He begged Dr. William McRae, Victoria's chief medical officer, to order the flogging stopped. Dr. McRae would do no such thing. After 50 lashes, John Morrison's back was black and blue and bloody. The Weekly Times reported it was the greatest number of lashes inflicted in the colony since the convict days of yore. Yet the Argus didn't think the punishment had been brutal enough. The second flogging went ahead around the time that Charlie Marks started working with Ned Feeney at Melbourne Hospital. It was reportedly even more brutal than the first whipping. The Ballarat Courier noted, quote, The criminal's shoulders and back, down to the waist, presented the appearance of so much raw beef. John Morrison endured his third set of lashes in April 1871. He then had to serve a decade in Pentridge. But John Morrison was a survivor. Ancestry.com.au records show that he passed away in Yakandanda in 1914, at the ripe old age of 79, a local newspaper recalling that he'd been well-known and well-liked as an elderly country bachelor. But back in 1871, when John Morrison was being flogged and Ned and Charlie were becoming friends, the colony's judges were punishing other men convicted of sodomy. They'd give them prison terms ranging from 5 to 15 years, and at least one other man was given 150 lashes. Yet prosecutions and convictions were not common. They didn't need to be. Punishment was so complete. Police arrest, public prosecution, press shame, popular hatred, judicial denunciation, brutal torture, and prison time stretching to life that its real effect was to strike fear into gay men and keep them in the shadows. Ned and Charlie would have been well aware of these cases. They would have also known about another tragedy because it had touched their hospital. This murder case serves as a stark contrast to sodomy cases. In the early hours of Saturday the 3rd of June 1871, 26-year-old Charles Miles had come home to the little Lonsdale Street house he shared with his mother and with his 22-year-old brother Tom. Charles and Tom had long been at odds. Both believed the other to be a loafer. 
This night, Charles was drunk. He woke up Tom, pulled him out of bed and told him to get out of the house. Tom claimed he'd been lacing up his shoes when Charles had hit him. So Tom got up and punched Charles, hard enough for Charles to fall to the floor, face down, insensible. Tom then got a claw hammer and brought it down hard on the back of Charles's head. He raised the weapon again. Their little brother Henry, aged 11, who'd been awoken by the fray, screamed, Tom, don't do it. But Tom did do it. He smashed his brother's head again. Charles's skull was badly fractured and an hour later he was admitted to Melbourne Hospital. There, he'd linger for five days. So, long enough for Ned Feeney and Charlie Marks to have been involved in his care, or at the very least to have seen him on his deathbed and or hear every detail from nurses and other employees. When Charles Miles died, the charge against Tom Miles was upgraded from assault to murder. At the inquest, little brother Henry gave detailed evidence against his brother Tom. The jury also heard from a neighbour that the accused had a month earlier been very drunk and had threatened to murder the deceased. Tom Miles stood trial for willful murder in July, and Judge Redmond Barry presided over the case. The Crown described the events as we've just heard them, and argued that this had been murder. The defence countered that the previous threat was not relevant, and the prosecution had only shown evidence of manslaughter committed on impulse. Maybe that was true. Yet, it was also beyond doubt that Tom had dealt the hammer blows upon his defenceless brother. He'd had a chance to stop after the first one. Had he not hit his brother again, Charles might still be alive. In his summing up, Justice Barry favoured the defence's argument, and the jury found Tom guilty of manslaughter. His honour then handed down a sentence of four years with hard labour. The Age commented that the punishment, quote, cannot be regarded as a severe one. Yet it was even less severe than that. As Tom Miles's prison file at the Public Record Office of Victoria reveals, he was released on remissions in April 1874, having served two years and nine months in Pentridge. Was this justice? One could argue and perhaps Ned and Charlie did over drinks in Mr. Clay's Burke Street wine bar, that what Tom Miles had done was not murder. It was the case of two brothers, men who loved each other, or at least once had, behaving irrationally, with a tragic result. But if Judge Barry had favoured the Crown's argument and swayed the jury to a guilty verdict, then Tom would have been sentenced to sway from the gallows. Yes, the jury might have recommended mercy and Judge Barry might have recommended mercy to the executive, but the best Tom could have hoped for would have been life inside Pentridge. Judge Barry, you could argue, had, in his wisdom, prevented this and thus prevented a double tragedy. But two years and nine months for caving in your brother's head versus 150 lashes and a decade in prison for consensual sodomy? What did living in such a society do to the mental, emotional and spiritual health of homosexual men, knowing they were often regarded as worse than killers and punished more severely? How heavily did it weigh on Ned Feeney, who'd already lived through famine and war and for the past 18 months had worked in hospital wards where daily duties meant witnessing all sorts of horrors? 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. By the start of February 1872, Ned Feeney and Charlie Marks were in distress, individually and as friends. On the 3rd of that month, Charlie resigned from the Melbourne Hospital. He did so in order to take a job as second steward on the Adena, the steam ferry that took passengers and cargo back and forth between Melbourne and Warrnambool. Compared with the hospital, this was surely a more enjoyable career choice. Charlie would be looking after passengers rather than patients. Adena's round trips took only three days, so Charlie would still be able to see Ned. But there would be a rupture in their relationship, as they'd no longer be working and living together. From newspaper accounts written in the months that lay ahead, readers might have been left with the impression that Charlie had sailed away as soon as he signed on to the Adena. But shipping reports and advertisements show that while Adena arrived in Melbourne from Warrnambool on the 3rd of February, the ship was to be laid up for two weeks for its half-yearly overhaul. So Charlie wasn't going to actually leave Ned and Melbourne for a while yet. But Charlie was no longer living in the Melbourne hospital staff quarters, and Ned was working night shifts, so the men saw a lot less of each other immediately. Two days later, the 5th of February at 8pm, Ned Feeney started his shift at Melbourne Hospital. Soon after, a doctor needed him, but Ned couldn't be found on the wards. They discovered him in that little room where he sometimes took a break. Ned Feeney had taken an overdose of chloroform, and he was nearly dead. Dr. William Bradford did everything he could. After lingering in a precarious state, a patient in his own hospital, Ned began to improve. When he was able to talk, he claimed he'd accidentally overdosed while using chloroform as a remedy for a sore stomach. Ned could not easily admit otherwise. Like homosexual acts, attempting suicide was a crime, even though self-destruction was also seen as symptomatic of insanity. Of course, those who successfully committed suicide could not be punished. Instead, they were in effect posthumously acquitted when coroners found they'd destroyed themselves while labouring under temporary insanity. These coronial findings would sometimes include the cause of the mental disturbance, whether melancholy, nervous affliction, physical suffering, alcoholic intoxication, or shame of some sort. Offenders who survived a suicide attempt would be brought before a magistrate. Often they'd be remanded in custody so that their mental states could be assessed. Charlie came to visit Ned in his convalescent bed in the hospital. He was very emotional, very affectionate, and cried openly at how close he'd come to losing his close friend. Had Ned's suicide attempt been a reaction to Charlie's resignation and the prospect of him spending a lot of time away from Melbourne? We don't know, but the timing was striking. Officially, hospital authorities accepted Ned's accidental overdose story. Privately, they knew he'd tried to kill himself. But they regarded Ned as a good worker, a sober man, and one who was kind to the patients. So they allowed him to stay on. Ned was discharged from care on the 9th of February. Of course, he still lived in the hospital's residential staff quarters, so he'd be under observation of a sort. Meanwhile, Charlie was also reportedly in despair. 
Aboard the Adena one night, he took rat poison, but then vomited it up. Next, he tried to cut his throat with a razor, but couldn't go through with it. Charlie had tried to commit suicide because of Ned's attempt. He just couldn't bear the thought of life without his best friend. It should be noted that while Ned's suicide attempt had independent witnesses at the hospital, the story of Charlie's subsequent attempts at self-destruction came from just one witness. He was to claim that Charlie had told him these things, and he'd pass his hearsay on to the police and the newspaper men. For a much more reliable account of the intimate details of Ned and Charlie's friendship, we can turn to letters they wrote to one another. On the 13th of February, from aboard Adina, Charlie wrote, quote, Dear Ned, I have wanted a serious chat with you for some days and have not had the chance, so I have written what I wanted to say. Ned, we are much alike, placed in this way. We have both lived but cannot obtain our ambition. Therefore, we shall both remain single. It would later be claimed that a woman had come between Ned and Charlie. Those first few sentences might have supported such a scenario, but the rest of the letter doesn't really seem to reflect that. Quote, I want to know if you like me well enough to accede to the proposal I make, that is, to remain fast friends, not friends today or tomorrow, but forever. I do not attempt to deny, but I'm proud to say I love you as a brother, and perhaps more, for I don't know a brother's love, never having had one, and I know you are fond of me, or at least I hope you are. Ned, we are both getting old enough to look out for the future, so I want us not ever to part. I am, as I told you before, expecting at the death of my poor old mother about £800 to £1,000, but in what way I am to receive it I cannot say, but when I know, you shall know also. Of course, when we have sufficient to start a business with, we will, that is, if you intend to be the friend I desire, which I sincerely hope you do. But think, Ned, if you like me well enough for that, I hope you do. If I go home, you come. If you go, I come with you. But as we neither have many friends we care much for, I think we might do far worse than be united in close brotherhood. If, as I said before, you can without any scruple say yes, then do. I shall be waiting in dread for fear of no. Answer this in the same manner, by writing, hoping, please God, you accede to my proposition. I'll close, and believe me to remain your sincere friend until death does part us. I mean every word, and more than is here written. Yours, Charlie. Charlie added the postscript, Don't be advised by anyone, but let it come from your own heart. Was this evidence of love beyond friendship? Until death does part us, it's basically a reworded marriage vow, and much else reads this way too. Certainly, this letter, when published in the newspapers, was interpreted as evidence of homosexuality. Yet, as you will have noted, nothing was said directly. Just as gay men had to live in the shadows to survive, if they put pen to paper, the true nature of their love had to live between the lines. Charlie had requested Ned reply in writing, but he didn't at first. However, we know they saw each other in the week following. We know this from the context of the next surviving letter. On the 19th of February, Charlie had proposed a new plan. What he proposed to do was get Ned a job aboard the Adena as an assistant steward, and then they could be together again. 
it would seem that Ned had agreed, or at least said he'd consider it. It also seemed that he'd reciprocated Charlie's feelings about a forever and ever friendship. But the next day, when Ned replied in writing, he said, My dear Charlie, I have at last come to the conclusion to answer your letter, and I dare say you will brand me as one of the most deceitful beings in existence. I would have replied sooner, but I was trying to battle with myself. As you notice me every night so very dull, I suppose you won't now wonder at the cause. I knew I would have to separate from you, and I did not like to mention it. Why had Ned made this decision? He went on, quote, the cause of my determination must remain a secret, and I trust that any little matters known to you will also remain secret. Your kindness to me during and since my illness I shall never forget, also your offer last night, which I could not accept. As I told you, I have come to the conclusion to remain in the hospital, as I consider it would be ungrateful for me to leave after the attention I got during my late illness. He concluded, wishing you every happiness that the world can afford, I remain yours, Edward. Charlie, who was due to sail on Adina the following day, wrote back immediately, but this letter would not survive. Yet Ned's reply to that letter gives us insights into its contents, and he also alluded to another earlier letter that he, Ned, had written. Quote, 24th February 1872. Dear Charlie, I received yours of the 20th February. I regret much that you should think I am so frivolous as to trifle with your feelings. As I said in my last letter, I am sorry that we should part, but fate has decreed it, so, however unpleasant it may be, to both of us. What I said in mine of the 18th, I mean, trusting you will forget my unkind treatment of you, Edward. This letter sounded very much like Ned was breaking up with Charlie. There was, of course, another possible interpretation that Ned was going to be separating from Charlie because he, Ned, was about to commit suicide. This might have been borne out in the record of them seeing each other two days later. It was the eve of Adina setting sail again, and Ned and Charlie met at Mr. Clay's wine bar. There, they talked deeply. They also drank more than usual, which in these last tumultuous weeks had become a problem for Ned. Ned had started cutting it pretty fine getting back to the hospital before the 10pm curfew, and his intoxication was also obvious to his colleagues. Either of these could put his employment in jeopardy, and this was the case that night, which we know because Charlie wrote to him the next morning from the ship, this letter giving us insight into what they discussed, and painting a picture of Charlie seeing the drunken Ned back to the Melbourne Hospital gatehouse just before curfew. Quote, SS Adina, Tuesday 27th. My dear Ned, I was glad you got in all right last night. Not that I shouldn't be very glad for you to leave, but I should like you to leave on your own account. It also appeared that last night Ned had been talking about suicide because Charlie wrote, quote, Now, as you are my friend, don't do anything of the sort. If you do, I shall not remain long. Why did Ned want to kill himself? Had he been wrestling with homosexuality? Was this what he was trying to resist when he said he wanted to break up with Charlie? Perhaps because Charlie wrote, quote, Ned, now I know the reason of your determination and that we are what, by the blessing of God, we shall remain true to the core. I feel happy and shall sail today with a light heart. This read like whatever bad had been between them was cleared up and their future was bright. 
or at least Charlie thought so. Quote, Fancy the good reception we gave each other in the morning and then at night, and that you and I are the same as before. Ned, for my sake, don't do anything to yourself. Charlie said he wasn't sure whether Ned remembered or not, but Charlie had taken some of Ned's money last night for safekeeping. Quote, When I see you on Friday, I will return it. So there were just three days until they were together again. In the meantime, Charlie wrote, Hoping you will enjoy every blessing life can afford. I close. I remain yours truly, Charlie. Oh, and in case Ned should feel bad for having been so boozed up, Charlie added a line to reassure him they'd been in it together. Quote, P.S. My hand shakes so from taking a little too much last night, Charlie. Ned being drunk that night was not an isolated event and hospital authorities had noticed. It was hard not to. One night, Ned had taken a whole bottle of spirits to his bed and he drank every drop. This, of course, was in shared quarters. The next morning, his hangover had been so severe, its appearance bordered on delirium tremens. While Ned had wanted to stay in his work out of loyalty, his bosses were no longer comfortable with his presence. On the 29th of February, they fired Ned. They fired him while Charlie was out of town. That night, the Adena steamed past the Twelve Apostles on its way back to Port Phillip Bay. All eyes were off the port side. What should have been the darkened landscape was burning ferociously. Miles and miles, all the way from Moonlight Head to Cape Otway. The last day of summer had unleashed a furnace. Adina docked at Queen's Wharf the next morning, Friday the 1st of March, 1872. The ship would sail again at noon on Tuesday the 5th. With his work done for the day, Charlie went to Mr Clay's wine bar to meet Ned, as they'd arranged. But Ned didn't show. Charlie said to Mr Clay that he feared Ned had gone somewhere to commit suicide. He was going out to search the city for him. If I find him, I won't come back, Charlie said. If I don't, I'll return. Out into buzzing Burke Street, he went. When Charlie didn't come back, Mr Clay surely wondered what had become of both men. After all, Charlie had been heard to say more than once that he couldn't, wouldn't, live without his Ned. So if Charlie had found Ned dead, he may have killed himself. Ned Feeney had not killed himself on the Friday night, but nor had he come to his senses. He went to Melbourne Hospital on Saturday to collect the week's wages he was still owed, but because he turned up drunk, he was turned away. Come back for your money on Monday, they told him. But Charlie found Ned, and on Sunday, together they visited the Adena. On the ship, they were seen by James Stewart, who worked as a camera operator for Burke Street photographer Mr Davies. That Sunday night, Ned and Charlie reportedly shared a room at the Great Britain Hotel in Flinders Street. On Monday night, the two men came into Mr Clay's wine shop. While they were there, Charlie asked Mr Clay what time the Treasury Garden's gates were locked up for the night. Eight o'clock, usually, Mr Clay told him. Do you think they are closed now? Mr. Clay replied, I'm sure they are. It is half past eight. Charlie said that was too bad because he had an appointment there. Ned was puzzled. What appointment have you? Charlie replied, Oh, I have an appointment with you. The men stayed a little longer and then left together. 
The next day, Tuesday the 5th of March, at around 1 to 1.30, they were back on Burke Street. The ship Adina had sailed at noon. It had sailed without Charlie. Him not turning up meant he was fired, and he might also be charged in court for dishonouring his contract. Charlie and Ned had both crossed personal Rubicons. They had lost good jobs due to their bad behaviour. This might limit their future prospects. That sweltering afternoon, Ned and Charlie swept into the studio of photographer William Davies, which was on Burke Street East, opposite the Theatre Royal. Both Ned and Charlie were a little drunk. Ned seemed depressive, Charlie manic. Mr Davies had been a well-known Melbourne photographer since 1858. He'd made many pictures of city landmarks and done portraits of local notables like John Pascoe Faulkner and visiting celebrities such as famed Irish actor Gustavus Brooke. But Mr Davies' bread and butter came from making carte de visite, or visiting card, photos of ordinary folk. Ned and Charlie wanted their pictures taken in this small format but they didn't want to sit or stand individually in front of the studio backdrop like most customers. They wanted to be in the picture together. In the picture together, holding the large pistols they'd brought for the occasion. In the picture together, pointing these guns at each other's hearts. The photos that were about to be taken would be among the most haunting in Australian history. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Romeo and Romeo, part two of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, Murder in the Treasury Gardens. Part three, Posing with Pistols, and part four, The Gallows of Gay Hate, will go on general release soon. But if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter, you can hear them right now, ad-free. Links are in your show notes, and you can access a free trial. As a supporter, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode, along with access to exclusive bonus shows. If you've enjoyed Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.